Linux Out Loud is firing up our microphones connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner-friendly conversation, well, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about open-source photography. Let's get into episode 33. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today are my fantastic co-hosts, the person with the unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE and Arch user, despite what he says, and our photographer extraordinaire, Wendy. What's going on, guys? Well, howdy, howdy. I'm so glad you're back, Matt. Back? When was he gone recently? He hasn't been. I'm just glad he made it back. That's all. I'm just being oh, thankful okay. that he can actually show up for work on time. Wait, typically you're the one who's late and you actually beat me in the chat today. So. Well, I know. I was just being grateful that Matt actually was able to show up. That's all. That's that's really as far as it goes. I know I'm usually the late one. I almost believe you and the sarcasm on that, Nate. Almost. Like my almost unhealthy obsession. You're right. Well, then you'd have two unhealthy obsessions. Then. <laughs> just saying. The Steam Deck and OpenSUSE? There are so many obsessions I do have. They just I rotate them because there's not enough time for all of them. God. No, Wendy, get it right. It's the Steam Deck with Arch. <laughs> with Steam OS. I wouldn't dare run Arch on it. Even though it's running Arch anyway. Anyway, so what have you been up to uh, there, Nate? <laughs> well, I brought up before that I tutor kids. And one of the things that I've had a challenge with is doing review games and whatnot. And I'm supposed to keep it simple. And all the simple games that I've done, I've not enjoyed myself. And if I don't enjoy the game, how can I expect the kids to enjoy the game? So I decided to try something different. I found this thing on GitHub, like a Jeopardy board where you can fill in your own questions. It's very simple. It's just a text file that you put all your questions and answers into. Anyway, with Jeopardy, it's what is the Magna Carta or whatever. I got it set up. Um, I bought some buzzers, like a set of eight team answer buzzers. The questions were fine. Everything was was good there. The kids, it took a little bit for the kids to understand like the rules of Jeopardy because I guess kids don't watch the same things I watch as a kid. Yeah, fine, whatever. But the problem was they were so overzealous with slamming on those buzzers. I couldn't tell who hit the buzzer first. I'm going to have to probably get an Arduino or something like a Node MCU or some kind of a device, Arduino-like device, really tiny one. I don't know yet how I'm going to do this, but wire them all together so all the blue team and all the red team buzzers can be on the Arduino, which would send a message either via Bluetooth or maybe Wi-Fi, probably the easiest, like MQTT or something like that, so I can see who actually activates the buzzer first to call them. That was the biggest hang-up I had. Other than that, the kids were laughing, they were having fun, and it was a success. So I put a link to the GitHub project, the repository for GitHub, the project on GitHub. As I stumble over my words, get, got stuck in a paper bag there, I guess, for you know anyone else to use. But it's fun to do, and uh, it makes me want to find a family feud-style project, because I think that would be also, since I have eight kids in my class that I tutor for on each team, we could do kind of like a family feud-style as well, which I think would be fun. I actually love this, and I wish that you would have found this or I would have found this last year because the Tuesday co-op, we did lots of different games in which we would have the kids do a Jeopardy thing. And I had used a website called Jeopardy Labs in order to build these different Jeopardy games, which these kids had played Jeopardy enough throughout their time in this co-op. They already knew the rules and how all of that was supposed to work. But the Jeopardy Labs website that I'd found was a paid service. It actually did a fairly good job. It did have a decent web UI that we were able to use. I could input how many different teams that I had and use that on a web-based version of the game. But it would have been really nice to have a local version of it. Even though I am not doing those classes with Tuesday Co-op this year, I definitely want to play with this. I think my kids would love it, and I just didn't see the point in keeping the subscription to the Jeopardy Labs website when I was no longer using it for larger groups. And this is a way to kind of fill in that gap with what looks like a really awesome open source project. It is. It's very simple to set up. Basically, you just download it. And then in that directory, you have to uh, npm start to start a, a Node.js HTTP server. And then it's on localhost 9000. You go to that and then it's your Jeopardy board. You can have different Jeopardy boards by very simple. It's like with some syntax right in the URL. So the thing I'm going to do with this is I'm um, sometime in this next week, I should say, I'm gonna run this on my server 
just punch a hole in the firewall to this port and hand it out to the different families that I help out and so they can practice at home if they want to. Easy to set up, very easy to put in the questions. If you can read a text file, you can put in the questions, no problem. And they have a template there for you to go by as well. I will definitely be checking this out. And if I've got any questions, I will let you know. Awesome. Now, are you going to ask me some of these questions while you're in the mountains? Well, no, not while I'm in the mountains, because I have zero cell phone service when we are out there. And we finally got to go back again this weekend. It was the third time that we've been able to go up into the mountains since the snow came off. And I don't want to say this summer because we're really not in summer anymore. We're now in fall, the end of September. And the joy of getting to go up at different times of year. So we've gone up in the spring. We've gone up once during the summer-ish August time. So that's still summer, still hot up there. And then now here towards the end of September, the nights get really cold up in the mountains around us. So on the one creek that runs by where we typically are, there was ice on it first thing in the morning. And then by the time you get to midday, usually around like one or two-ish, it's really, really hot. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm melting. So you have to have a wide variety of clothes when you're up in the mountains this time of year for nighttime and daytime, just because the temperature swings are so dramatic. But it was nice to be able to get up there again. I hope to be able to get up there more this fall and just disconnect. It's one of the things that I love to go do with my family is go spend some time in the mountains. And we didn't get to do as much of it this summer as we would have liked to. So hopefully we can continue to make up for that this fall. Very relaxing. So I'm just counting down the days until we're back up there again. It does seem like a good thing for your mental health to disconnect from everything and be with nature. I find those days when I do disconnect here, I like to be outside in, on my trails or, you know, with my birds, my mini birds. And there's kind of a rejuvenation I feel like I get from nature around me. Something to be said for the value of earth and green and, and so forth, especially the green. I mean, who, who can't like green, especially like a chameleon green? <laughs> of course, you would love <laughs> chameleon green. There's less green out there this time of year. Of course, the evergreens are always going to be green. All of the other trees are starting to change color and seeing some of those differences in them, which is really nice. And being able to take hikes where you're not absolutely roasting is also really nice. It's one of the enjoyable things about fall is you can take some of those early morning, very strenuous walks and not get overheated, which can be a problem for me and trigger migraines. Oh, for sure. I love it. I love being able to disconnect. I know there's people that when they go quote unquote camping, they still have to have Wi-Fi and internet connectivity. And that's not me. When we are away, I want to be away and be focused on my family with nothing else that can get in the way of that. So not having cell phone service is one of the things I look forward to in those places. It's very much when I'm home, I'm surrounded by tech. We've got all kinds of things going on with technology in every part of our everyday lives. And when we're up there, all of that stuff just goes away and we focus on other things during that time. Yeah, that's really awesome. And I can't help but think then how a Steam Deck would be great in offline mode <laughs> out in the mountains. Well, it would be if you were wanting to do that. What, Matt, didn't you take yours? No. No, no, I did not take my camping. It was camping. Nate that took his camping. Nate took his camping. Give me some credit. Yes, it was. I was playing Game Boy games on it. I'm like Nate. I know how to actually disconnect from tech. Totally. I disconnect, but it's more like a reboot time. You know, I just go out for a few minutes, an hour, a couple hours here and there, away from tech. I'm back off, all right? <laughs> <laughs> So many things I can say, Nate. None of them are appropriate. What's new? They're all appropriate for this group. For the group, <laughs> not the recording. You are such a cotton-headed any muggins. That either gets cut or bleeped, typically, because sometimes we can't help it. Sure, like my bad Wendy last week that stayed in the show, just not actually in the show. <laughs> Beep! <laughs> exactly! That's what that tone generator is for inside Audacity. <laughs> So Nate takes his Steam Deck when he's camping, and you just admitted that you don't, but it's not just her games. It has some additional functions, and you've been using that in desktop mode. How has it been functioning? Is it something that you would recommend for others that are wanting one system to be both a console and maybe 
a docked desktop. The Steam Deck is an interesting device just from the console perspective. I've been using it probably the last week or so with the uh, JSOC, their cheaper dock that they have, just because I really don't need a lot of the other stuff that the other dock options provide. I've been using it strictly as just a get stuff done device. I've installed apps through the GUI. I haven't touched the terminal. I have any of the stuff that as a Linux user, we are so... I don't want to say condition, but we are so used to doing. I am not doing a lot of that stuff. I'm not running, you know, update commands through the terminal. I'm not being an arch system. I haven't even gotten rid of the inability to change the file system. So it's not just read only. I just don't care. So things like I've been using a lot of app images, obviously flat pack from the desktop side. The nice thing with the desktop end is customization is still very much a thing. The customization still holds even through the wipes and the updates and the way Valve ends up actually pulling down the updates and stuff. So that's been really interesting to use as far as that. I've been able to stream, record, obviously play video games. I've been able to do just all the normal stuff I would do on like my not super expensive desktop, but my much more powerful desktop than the Steam Deck. But I just find myself worrying more about just, can I get my stuff done? Can I fire up a web browser? That's really all I cared about. And it does everything that you a general end user would do. If you're a Linux fan, I know, Nate, you had certain things you were trying to do with the Steam Deck that didn't necessarily work or fit for you. Well, the only thing that really doesn't fit for me is the fact that a really silly package manager that, that supports it. But running <laughs> Flatpak Snap Images works fantastically well. I fixed the theme on it, so it's got a little chameleon, smiling chameleon in the corner instead of the, the silly Steam logo and made the theme a lot lot better for me. Anyway, but aside from that, I don't actually use the desktop mode very often. Every once in a while I go into it and I do keep a little Bluetooth keyboard with me generally. So if I really need to type something out, I, mean, I put a telegram on there. So if I really have to telegram someone for whatever reason, it's very unlikely. I could definitely do that. My thought is, since that machine has the most horsepower, like raw horsepower of any of my machines, I'm not sure about like thermal saturation, such how it would do compared to my desktop machine if, if it could handle, you know, extended period of time, like rendering or whatnot. But my thought is, I should probably use it as my rendering machine when I do videos because... I think it has substantially more horsepower and it could actually do the better job than my laptop or possibly my desktop. Raw performance wise, it certainly is more powerful. I do get where you're coming from with that. I think for me, my the interesting thing though is with the way Flatpak and stuff has managed to kind of make the underlying system really not matter. Exactly. It takes all the pain points of Arch and makes them go away. Right. <laughs> Which are a lot. Numerous. Bountiful. <laughs> <laughs> As you talk to two co-hosts who both use Arch-based distros. But anyway, I could see myself actually installing Steam OS with the desktop mode portion if that's something that they enable, you know, once they come out with an installer and stuff for other devices and stuff. It is definitely something I could see myself using as more of a go-to Linux distro, honestly. I think as a Linux distribution, SteamOS, I really, truly think it's pretty fantastic. I mean, there's some things I don't like about it because I'm not, I'm never satisfied with anything that I'm presented. So that <laughs> aside, I think for most people, and by most people, I mean probably 99% of people, it's probably perfect. I realize I'm an edge case in everything that I talk about. It is very well done. The polish is great. The default applications they throw in there is fantastic. Anything else you need is available via Flatpak, which is already enabled. I didn't have to do anything to enable that. Yep. So I mean, it's ready to go. It's just, it's a ready to go desktop environment. And I think as a plasma desktop environment, like if you look at it as a plasma desktop environment, it's basically, except for the default launcher, I don't like it. I had to keep it because it has this, you know, add to steam in it and some things I don't like about it. But anyway, aside from that, it's ready to go. It's basically perfect. Yeah. The desktop mode is the most ready for general mainstream consumers Linux that there possibly is currently above any other public distro, etc. Just for the sheer simplicity and headaches that it gets away with just not having. Right. Now, once you start adding in different hardware configurations and that stuff, that might be a little different. Are we going to see Valve play nice with like NVIDIA when they do SteamOS, you know, for general consumers or availability? Eh, who knows? They probably will. That aside, though, I think the, the Steam Deck, if you need a desktop for your kids and you literally go buy a $30 dock, because that's basically how much the JSOC dock is. Mm -hmm. And if you go and buy that, stick it in a dock, put a mouse and keyboard in front of it, and hook it to a monitor or TV, whatever, 
there's your computer. There's your kid's computer. And it's like 400 bucks. That's not a bad bargain, especially with the hardware prices still being where they're at. I would argue you don't need most of that. All you need is the Steam Deck, a case with a kickstand on it, a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse, and you're ready to go. Many of the portable computers from the 80s had screens smaller than what the Steam Deck has. So I don't see why you can't write your next term paper on the Steam Deck screen. (laughs) That's nostalgia speaking, Nate. Oh. (laughs) That's why. Okay, fine. <laughs> and I think that's a good transition point. I thought it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed that. Well, when you hear Steam Deck and she does what I do when I hear, you know, certain things about 3D printing. When you hear 3D printing or when we're talking about robotics or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anytime Wendy and I talk about something cool, Matt checks out. Anytime I talk about the Steam Deck, Wendy checks out. There's that. Yeah. Now there are just certain things that you guys have a um, better banter for than any interjection I do. So I just learned to pick and choose where to go. And the weird thing is I'm probably the least of the gamers here too. I'm least a gamer than either of you two. Yeah, but the Steam Deck fits more of your style because it's just, you know emulation and all that stuff. So that's so good for emulation, except for the Commodore sixty four. But Wendy checks out because it's a piece of hardware she has no interest in. So. <laughs> Right, exactly. Like, I am curious about it in its desktop form. I do find that interesting. I find it more usable that way. I would put it this way, Wendy. Say you're, I'm not saying I hope this happens or anything. Say your daughter's laptop takes a which it has given NVIDIA. Uh, (laughs) If you only had a limited budget, this is a great machine for a desktop because you can literally throw a mouse, a keyboard, a docking USB-C docking station, and all you need is an HDMI connection to a bigger screen. Yep. See, and that sounds very usable to me. Throw it in desktop mode. And the nice thing is, even if you go to that base $400 model, you can spend like 50 bucks and get 512 gig NVMe off like eBay from, they use the super small ones. Uh, was it 2230s, Nate, I think, for the NVMe? Yeah, something like that. They're like 30, 40 bucks and you can take all the stuff off and literally it's like 10 screws. So it's really, really easy to upgrade stuff. You're actually missing a huge piece of that. The battery life on desktop mode is insane long. Honestly, I haven't tried the battery life that way. I've literally left it in the JSOC dock, so I always have the power thing on it. As a portable computer, it is flipping awesome. We have at least one listener that loves our Steam Deck talk. (laughs) (laughs) Might be intentional. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to use this stuff, but literally as a piece of hardware, it is awesome for multiple things. And when you have a four-year-old, you need to shut him up. You just give the Steam Deck (laughs) and say, here's your Lego Incredibles. You're good to go. Be quiet in the back of the van for the next 30 minutes. But anyway, that is probably the best thing I can make a recommendation for in that case. Don't look at 100% spec for spec. Like I can spend double the money and get eight cores and 16 threads and all the other stuff. It's like, does it do what I need it to? If the answer is yes. Right. I'm just saying like as a desktop oriented machine, it actually works very well and it does eliminate a lot of the headaches that Arch can induce sometimes. (laughs) Let's be real. I know you use Manjaro. I use more direct Arch because I use Garuda, but Garuda is starting to kind of go its own way anyway at this point. So that's because you two are mascus, mas, mascusist, mascusist. What is it? How do you say it? You like to <laughs> masochists. Masochists. Yeah. Masochists. You love your arch. I absolutely love my <laughs> Manjaro system. I know other people have problems with it, but it has been incredibly solid for me. But it's not the only system I run because I also love Fedora. So this is where Matt and I have a love hate of distros and not actual hate because we can agree on our love of arch based distros and arch (laughs) but we disagree on our love for dnf based distros because i love it he doesn't and i think dnf is fantastic and i really really want OpenSUSE to adopt DNF over Zipper. As much as I love Zipper, yes, DNF handles PackageKit and all the different little quirks with PackageKit perfectly for a desktop. You still use Zipper for server end, but I think DNF works better for a desktop system because it will handle all the repositories and distribution update stuff perfectly in OpenSUSE. So all I'm going to say is my gripe with DNF currently disdained me from wanting to use Fedora is simply the fact that it is slow as... Now, I know there's a new spec for DNF. It does parallel updates now, parallel downloads and such. That's a non-issue. That impression turned me off to DNF so badly. You're like one of those ButterFS people. ButterFS is no good. It lost my data. (laughs) 
10 years ago. No, I make fun of ButterFS for not having RAID on certain things. That I make fun of. That's more of a technical thing. Yeah, but you should be running RAID 5 anyway. It was RAID 5 and 6. At least get it right. RAID 10 was basically what it's designed for and does very well. And it will not, we will not have any issues. I've been using RAID 10 now since 2019. Same machine. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, well, let's say complex, especially for a guy like me. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, from teams of one, so just you, to teams of a thousand with simple, powerful cloud computing and growing at DigitalOcean. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the Tux digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do dot co slash t-u-x 2022 so again go to get started with your 100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform go to do.co slash tux 2022 speaking of getting work done on your computers and whatnot or your steam deck in my case there is one thing that you can do, and that's work on having your memories done up nice and neat from using open camera all the way through the process of dark table or raw therapy, whatever you prefer, because we all want those memories to be nice and crisp when we actually look back on them. With this particular episode, we kind of wanted to focus on that open source photography. A lot of the cameras on phones are fantastic now, but a lot of them use AI. They're, you know, if you, in like one of these cases, custom ROMs, a lot of that goes away. <laughs> so we're talking about using open camera specifically because it's an open source app and it does a little way with a lot of that stuff. So Wendy, I know you use open camera. What are some of the settings and stuff that you would recommend for, for people to kind of get the most out of that app to change and whatnot, especially if you're looking for the best quality without a lot of fiddling. Some of this is really going to depend on your phone. And you're right that there are some decent cameras on the back of most phones, including your mid-range, not so much necessary with the budget. And does it support RAW or not? And that really depends on the model of the phone itself and whether it allows that. So if you do have a raw capable camera in your phone, open camera can take advantage of that. And the other thing that the base software does that we've talked about before is it uses algorithms in the background to get the best quality image from that camera sensor. And there's really a lot that goes into that. We do see some of that on your standard DSLRs too, but it is even more so heavily utilized in these phone cameras because it's got to make up for the fact that you don't have a focal length that changes. The only way you're getting background blurs if you're using two different sensors, one to judge foreground and background. Now, there are some apps where you can manually blur things and, well, that gets a little bit hairy. But if you're wanting to take full advantage of this, and I had to open it up on my phone because, yes, I'm still running Lineage OS. And just as a side note, the OTAs on it, I've done three, have been absolutely amazing with no problems. It installs the update and we're good to go. So between Lineage OS and Open Camera, I'm pretty much set on my phone. Now, if you scroll down to it, there is a camera API that you can change. And this is one of the ways that you're going to get the most control on this application. And you have two different options, which is the original camera API or camera two API. Now the two is the one that gives you access to shooting in RAW that you don't have to turn that on if you don't want to. And you being able to set exposure, focus, and white balance. Now, even if you can't shoot in RAW, but you're interested in really playing with that camera and doing some artistic things with it, I would highly recommend turning on 
the API to so you can set those different features in it. Now, any camera you can use on auto mode, but that's exactly what you're gonna get is what the camera gives you. And there's people that get great images with that, but for the sake of this, we're saying that you are willing to play with some of those settings. And that's where that API 2 comes in and makes a big difference. Now, you don't want to turn on the save for everything because another thing that camera API does, if you go into the photo settings, then you can save all of the pictures if it is doing noise reduction. So it'll save the original without noise reduction and then it'll save the one with. If you're shooting in RAW, you don't have to worry about that because it's not doing that post-processing. But then you can have it save all of the images if you're doing a bracketing. So just a touch on a bracketing is it'll take images that is darker and images that are lighter and one in the middle and it'll bring that together to make your HDR image. Because especially with these cameras, they are limited on the amount of range they have, the amount of detail that you'll get in the really dark and the really bright areas. And when you're taking those multiple pictures and blending them together, which I love to do for landscapes, even using a quote unquote real camera, it allows me to get the sky that I want with the ground the way it actually sees it, the way my eye sees it instead of the limited range of what the camera sees in one given shot. And you can save all those. Now, the more images you're saving at once, the more it is going to slow down that process. So if you've got a nicer higher end phone with a lot of RAM and a really nice processor, you probably won't notice too big of a difference. If you have more of a mid-range phone, especially in the processor side or slower RAM, then your phone is going to slow down, the camera app is going to slow down, and you could potentially end up in crashes. So those options are there inside Open Camera. I mean, really, it has so many tools, but that doesn't mean you have to turn them all on. And I would say always save your images in the highest 100% format that'll give you. And then if you do shoot in RAW, I would say save a JPEG version and a RAW version. Now, why do I have that recommendation? Well, say you have an image that you want to share right away. And if it's already saved in JPEG, then that can go onto your Mastodon account or one of the open source, I can't remember the name of it, photo accounts, or wherever you share those, Facebook, whatnot, they can be shared immediately from your device, where if it's the raw image, that saves all of that data in one nice larger bundle of information. And before it can be used, it needs to be exported as a JPEG or a PNG. TIFF file, I mean, there are more ways of doing that, but just know that that file format has to be exported. Now there are some camera tools that you can use on your phone, your tablet, whatnot, but it does give you the opportunity and to pull it to some of my favorite programs, Raw Therapy and Darktable. Now, how was I in covering the question you asked? I think I got way off topic there, which isn't, you know, abnormal for this show. But what can I clarify? Well, I have a question. I'm not sure if it's a clarification, but so a raw file format image, that's something that Darktable or Raw Therapy can import from the camera, correct? Yes, absolutely. That is what they are made for. They can do some tweaking on JPEG or PNG compressed images in general, but where they shine is with that raw file format. So they have all of the data to work with and you can make better tweaks in those without getting distortion. So what is the size of a raw file versus a JPEG or PNG? Like what, what is the like percentage of differentiation? I realize it has to do a lot with how much color variation there is in the image itself, but how much bigger is it? It actually depends on the sensor itself. It'll okay. differ for every single sensor that you have. So the larger the sensor, then definitely the more data it will take. I would say my standard exported PNG or TIFF files are actually quite large, especially if they are images that I have done additional tweaking to, like bringing layers in together. But let me pull up my file folder right now, and I can tell you the average raw file size 
for my Nikon D7200. Now this won't be the same for my phone and those images would definitely be smaller. The average raw file size for my camera is a 24.3 megabytes, like not overly huge. But when you're talking about an image that is saved from the camera, originally converted into a JPEG or a PNG, you're looking at least half that size. Now you can adjust quality inside both open camera or regular camera and that file size can change depending on what you have quality set to. But if you're taking a picture to save a memory, it should always be at a hundred percent quality, always. I think it's because of this show that I started running open camera to begin with, but I don't have it set to do raw files on there. It's, it's always doing JPEGs. Or, or maybe am I missing it? I mean, it would put in the same folder, would it not? The DCIM folder? It would put it in the same folder, but like I said, you have to go into the settings and change that to be the camera to API. And then you need to manually turn on raw because that is not turned on by default once you turn on that API. So then you would need to go into photo settings and change that. Just like it's really cool with the video side of it. If you're in API settings too, you can set different ways in which it's handling color, which I find absolutely awesome for hmm. your videos. So you have more flexibility in say you take something that doesn't have a specific color profile added to it. It's all pretty flat. And then in post-processing, that's when you can bring out the different colors and the like inside of your video, just like you would do in images, you can do that in video too. An open camera gives you that flexibility. So you did have a really, really nice camera on your phone. Even if it's not running a custom ROM, you can use this specific camera app to create really high quality raw video or images and then take them and use them in whatever platform or way that you want to. Well, you learn something every day, I guess. That's pretty amazing. I think I have like three sensors on the back of my Moto here. Something I have to play around with for sure. I'm more familiar with the more of the video setting stuff, open camera, than I am a lot of the photography stuff. So I'm learning a whole lot of different stuff with this. So like I just changed my camera on my phone, the, the mid-range phone I have to do RAW as opposed to JPEG. I think it was what it defaults to at 100. Yeah. As far as the video stuff, Nate, yeah, you, you can do a lot of weird things. You can make, depending whether or not specific to your camera, you can force like 4K high frame rate recordings and all the other stuff. There's a lot of different stuff you can do with open camera. But uh, no, I think you explained a lot of stuff. But what would you say... Because you're going to see a lot of information on the camera to API. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't going to know like ISO and all the other stuff. So like you might want to kind of give them an indication of like what they're looking at when they see. Because like right now, like I'm in my viewfinder and you'll see like 1624 for an ISO. So most people won't under, I don't think will understand that if they're coming from uh, whatever the manufacturer gives them for auto a, mode. <laughs> for an yes. auto mode. So ISO is actually the sensitivity. It used to be in film, but now we still use that same term in digital cameras, but it's the sensitivity of how much light it will take in or adjust to. So most cameras start at 100. You'd see a lot of film canisters that have a 100 ISO. And as that number goes up, the sensor itself becomes more and more sensitive to light. This is very important if you are in dark situations. Now, the downside of increasing your ISO is digital noise. How a camera sensor works is it actually uses the electrical charge of the photons hitting that sensor in order to paint that picture. So in a place that is a much larger charge because more photons are hitting it, that is where that image will be brighter. And we can go into color, but that's a whole lot more camera science than I think this show is necessarily <laughs> meant yeah, for. Yeah. I do go over <laughs> this on an episode of Hardware Addicts, and I will link that in the show description. So if you are curious how color gets worked into camera sensors, 
you can go check out that show because I do find it fascinating. It's a lot like the way our eyes work, but I will try to avoid getting too camera nerdy in this (laughs) particular episode. That's how sensors work when it comes to seeing what's light and dark inside an image. If you're turning that up, you are increasing that electrical sensitivity and it can get some ghosting. I would say that's what those little spots of noise are inside that sensor. There are many cameras, particularly the very nicer higher-end professional cameras that use some processing in the back end and knowing where that noise is going to come through and some different sensor technologies to alleviate that. And it's one of the things that your main camera, the one that comes with it, will have some tweaking dedicated to in cleaning up that noise And this is where programs like Darktable and Raw Therapy are really nice. If you're wanting to use open camera and shooting in raw, you can go in and say, okay, I want to use these different algorithms with inside the processor in order to clean them up. Okay, I'm getting way off topic. We were just defining ISO. ISO is the sensitivity of the sensor. But it does lead to a nice lead in. So you finally get the picture that you you know, you wanted. But you find a lot of digital noise, as an example. So this is where, like you mentioned, things like raw therapy and dark table, or maybe you don't like the color saturation, because I know there's a bunch of different stuff you can do with these programs, and I'm probably just surface level of knowledge with these. You can change the color saturation. You can change, you know... There's red eye removal tools. There's a ton of stuff in these applications. So say somebody has a bunch of digital noise and they open up in, what would you recommend? Darktable or Raw Therapy to start? I typically recommend Darktable because that's the one that I use, but whichever one you feel more comfortable with. If you're coming from any kind of Adobe product, I think Raw Therapy would be easier for someone to learn because they set up things in a very similar fashion as far as how the module layout looks, the way different things are named inside those modules, that's probably the best and most simplest transition. If you've never used one of those projects before, take a look at both of them and see which one you like. I personally prefer Darktable and mainly because it has some tools that I prefer. I know they're ones that we've talked about before where it comes to masking I can choose a mask based on luminosity. I can use a mask based on drawing it out or based on specific colors. So those are definitely more, I would say, advanced techniques in editing images, which is one of the reasons I prefer Darktable because they are tools that I use in my workflow and I find very helpful, but it's up to you. I think they are both amazing programs. You can get amazing results from either one of them, but pick one and then learn it. So whether that's just time playing in it or whether it's going and finding resources on YouTube or Odyssey in order to learn how to use those programs. When I was first getting really serious about using Darktable full-time, I actually bought a course on how to use it and what the different modules did, which I found extremely helpful. One of the nice things about that course was it came in an open source file type, if that's what I wanted to use as I was watching on my Linux system. I don't know if that class has ever been updated, but I will look into it and share the link to the class that I'd bought previously when I was getting very serious into Darktable. I did find it helpful because that information was on my local system. I didn't have to go to the internet to rewatch it and could play it as fast as slowly as I wanted and whatnot, I did find that really, really enjoyable in learning one. Especially considering your internet situation where it can come and go on you, having that offline is priceless. Yeah, absolutely. And if other people are using the internet really heavily, then I am no longer a pull on the internet because I'm able to use those resources offline. I have taken other classes in an online form, and they are great too. But I did appreciate having a physical copy that was mine forever that was not online. When speaking about, you know, you mentioned like the camera ISO and all the other stuff. Say they open the, one of these programs, either Raw Therapy or Dark Table, and the photo has red eye and generically from the flash catching the 
eye at the weird angles and stuff that typically happens. And then there's you want to denoise the background or like there's noise in the background. How would they go about fixing something like that? And we'll just use Darktable because that's the one you, you personally use the most. When it comes to denoising, you have several different options and several different modules. One of the ones that I really like is the contrast equalizer. I actually use this quite a bit. You can find it in the correction tab. So it's the symbol on top is a circle that's been split in two and it's kind of off to either side of it. That is the correction tab. And they have some really awesome factory-based settings in there. Denoise and Sharpen is the one that I like the most. It can make things look a little over sharpened at times, or you could just use the denoise chroma. So that's applying a denoise processing in those different color zones. And if I'm using the denoise and sharpen, it's typically not at 100%. I typically drop it down to like 0.75 or 75%. And that makes it not look quite so overly sharp as it can be in other times. You also have a denoise profiled. Now this is if you have a particular camera body where data has been given to Darktable so they know for this set of cameras that has the specific sensor, this is what the noise pattern typically looks like and so they can more accurately clean that up. There is a raw denoise option in there. It takes from that raw data itself, the very base layer, and is doing a denoise. I have found that less helpful than the profile denoise, but for most of your cell phone cameras, it's not going to have a built-in profile for those cameras. So raw denoise would be very helpful. So those are your three main options for denoising. So because this is something that I don't typically do, and that's because I don't use on-camera flash, whether it's on my phone or on my different cameras. And that's what that is coming from. It's from the flash and that reflection shining back at you. Darktable itself, and I will link this in the show description as well, gives several different options for getting rid of that. One is using masking. So you are using a drawn mask around that pupil, and then from there, desaturating it so that it is completely black. You can modify the output so it's reading only gray, and that'll get rid of the red. It's probably doing what other programs do when you're highlighting that red eye. It's just turning it to black or turning it to gray using a color scale, but you have to manually using one of the different masks, create that as where you're making that tweak on the eyes. And it's really pretty easy to do in order to create masks. So you'd say you'd go into the channel mixer, you'd create a drawn mask, and the changes you're making are only inside that mask. So it's not a big deal to be like, okay, go ahead and turn off red for this particular space or make this a black and gray only space, desaturate just this section of my image. Masks are awesome. I don't do a lot of photo editing, at least not of people. I usually photograph things. Does Raw Therapy or Darktable have a lot of good tools for taking good photographs of things specifically? They don't help you take the image. They help you clean up and export the image. So what you're saying is the turds of images I create, they can only polish so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, you can't take an image that is completely overexposed or completely underexposed and then make a great image out of it. You can only deal with the information that is in there. And once data is lost, especially in places where it's clipping on either side of the whites or the blacks, that data is just gone and you're not getting it back. Raw therapy does have a really cool tool in it where it can take things that are just slightly out of focus and using that data and bringing it back into focus. I have played with it a little bit. It is really pretty awesome, especially on your regular cameras. I wanna make sure that your lenses are being accurate, doing some testing with them, taking them in and getting them adjusted if needed so that they are always sharp but that is one cool thing that raw therapy has that Darktable doesn't. Obviously, these are very 
high level looks at these applications. These are not like this is more everyday users getting the most out of these applications for what they would need. Nate, in your case, I'm just going to say garbage in, garbage out. Photography is very much like any other media creation. What you get out of it is what you put into it as far as that. So if it's a garbage to start, it's getting the results still garbage. Well, that and probably the person doing it might be garbage too. So there's that. Wow. <laughs> Self-deprecating. And I wasn't even the one doing it this time. I mean, come on. You have met Nate before. He is very self-deprecating all the time. True. Hey, I've been nice this time. I've been good for the most been. part. For the most part. Keep telling yourself that, Matt. Keep telling yourself that. That's why I said for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> Still gives me an out. <laughs> it's true. That's the short, compact kind of getting the most out of your everyday photos and kind of tweaking them to make them a little more pizzazzy, I guess would be the right word to say. I mean, get the most out of that. Starting with open source and ending with open source to the next time you see that memory from that photo that you took. What are some of the photos that you've used to make those things happen from your own personal experience? Maybe some other applications. I know there's other applications that are kicking out there besides just these two particular applications that are open source. Let us know in the comments in the YouTube video portion of this, or you can email us and let us know what you guys think. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Belt Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com TUX to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Speaking of things of like photons and photography and lighting, Nate, you seem to have run into um, a situation with something that provides you power, which, you know, the sun. Yes. My solar electric installation company that hasn't quite finished the job here. Well, they went out of business as of two days ago, apparently. And I found out yesterday. So I had been coordinating with them on when they can do the final bit of the installation. So all, everything is you know, blessed off on and they engage all the different little bits so that I can actually really save money using the Generac battery system. And so it would discharge when the sun isn't shining. So basically it offsets my electric costs some more. They can't do that now because, well, they're out of business. And so I'm working on the next steps to fully activate the system. I have the manual and I've been digging into how the system works. I need to be able to understand how to engage the battery backup system and such in time with your electrical usage and whatnot. And it's not really very clear. It's not like there's a uh, cubiclenate.com, this is how you do this thing with that thing out there, unfortunately. So I have to do some pretty heavy digging. Now, I do have some professionals that I can lean on that are in different aspects of like industrial electrical industry, essentially. So I will be tapping on some of those resources and uh, basically what to do next because, well, I mean, now I'm kind of on my own, which I initially got the solar electric system because I did not know a lot of these things and I want a professional basically set it up so I can understand how it works and I can maybe replicate it like on Cubicle Labs. Well, now I'm being forced to learn a lot when I really wasn't prepared to in this way. So I got to get it going Soon rather than later. I mean, I am making payments on an incomplete solar electric installation right now, which I'm not super happy about, but hey, it's where I am, makes for good content and kind of helps me question some of my life choices. But anyway, so here we are. This is such a bummer that the company that you chose to go with, and I'm sure that it was either like a lack of companies around your area or doing a lot of research, and supposedly that one at the time had the best overall ratings and performance, that now they're no longer around to finish the job. 
And this is one of those things that I thought was going to be done, completely done a long time ago, because it feels like forever when you're like, (laughs) hey, yeah, they're finally coming out to install my solar panels. And now not only have you been hanging this long, there really doesn't seem to be an end in sight where this company is no longer around. Or the end might come sooner. Who knows? Right. I will get it going and I will make sure that it is functional and I do get the value out of it that I want. This is just going to require me to lean a lot heavier on my technical knowledge rather than leaning on some sort of training on how to use a system, I'm going to have to basically dig into it myself and hopefully not fry something or myself. Yeah, you definitely don't want to do that, frying yourself or something, though it's easier to replace the something than it is to replace you. Be careful with power. Power is dangerous. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure Matt wouldn't mind getting a different co-host. I mean, I'm sure Bill would be available. I'm sure. I know he's (laughs) mentioned that if we need him at any time, just to let him know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Wendy, no problems of your Pi not being fully installed. Apparently, you can do everything yourself. Yes, I can. But I do need to make a correction on that Raspberry Pi hat that I brought up last week. So I believe that I said it was the Pi Zero that you could not use the Pi hat on in order to code with the Lego motors and sensors but it's actually the Raspberry Pi 400. So if you do have a zero and and it has the 32-pin connector on it or you can attach the 32-pin connector to it, then you can use that board with the Pi Build hat. So I just wanted to make sure that I cleared that up. It's not the zero, it's the Pi 400 that doesn't work with the Build hat. Oh, very cool. So then I could do that with my Pi Zeros that are lying around. Yes, absolutely. All you got to do is pick up some motors and sensors and you are off and running. All I got to do is pick up some motors and sensors. (laughs) Yep. And you were definitely talking about energy and your battles with energy. And right now I'm looking at battery packs to go on my Raspberry Pi that I was able to get my hands on. I'll be ordering my Pi hat here probably this weekend so that we can do robotics with it. And I definitely want to be cord free. So that's one of the reasons I'm looking into a battery. But for our robotics game this year, it's all about power. So where our energy is made, how energy is stored, and then how it is consumed in our different products. And with every year, of course, we got our mat. That's fun. We got our robot that we build to do the different tasks on the mat. But a big key thing is the innovation project. And so each year, the kids have to do some research on whatever that topic is and find some way that they can either build a solution from scratch or take an existing solution and makes that better. And in that, it means we need to talk to different experts in the fields for whatever theme it is that year. And we have some really cool field trips or interviews lined up. Next week, we get to talk to somebody who is in the solar industry. He owns part of a business that's here in the West that deals with solar panels. And so we'll get to talk to him about how those work. What are some of the positives and negatives? It's about solar power. What is the some of the problems that he sees in the industry? And then around in my specific area, we have a lot of dairies. And one of the things that they've been trying to do is take that cow manure and turn it into a natural gas, a methane that can be used to power different things, fuel, all kinds of stuff. And so there's a dairy around here that's going to let us go do a field trip to check out their digesters. Most of Idaho, especially the part of Idaho I live in, we run off hydropower and it sounds like we might be able to get to go do a tour of a hydroelectric dam. This is going to be so much fun with all of the experts that we get to talk to. And I think the hardest part will be the kids narrowing down which part of the industry sector they want to focus on in order to build their innovation project solution. Well, that's super cool. Maybe I can lean on you for some information on on solar since you obviously have the connections. (laughs) Hey, why don't you send me a list of your questions and I can sneak them in there when we have our interview next week. (laughs) (laughs) Nate and I are dealing with all kinds of energy. And the game that you have for us this week, Matt, I checked it out before the show. Show notes came in incredibly early for this show. And so I was looking through the game and it is holy sci-fi. It is holy sci-fi. Nate actually saw me play this on stream. 
this past week. This game, ironically, which should fit in well with the theme of this episode, is about memories. Uh, the game is called Remember Me, and it deals with like the digitized nature of memories, how we remember things, how we recall them. And you kind of play this role of a character who is able to basically hack that and kind of change in what they call memory remix things so that scenarios play out a little bit differently and people act a little bit differently to your character based on those memory remixes. It's a interesting take. There's a lot of combat and kind of parkour elements to it. There's a lot of climbing segments and that kind of stuff for it as well. It's a fun game. It's a not a long game. Nate, you made a comment about something that I had posted on Twitter about the bargain basement. I told you the game <laughs> recommendation wouldn't be the bargain basement this time. I kind of lied because apparently it's on an 80% on Steam right now. So well, look at that. So Valve made me a liar. Thanks, Valve. <laughs> I mean, they didn't make you a liar. Uh, ooh, shade. <laughs> anger. There's such anger hidden under that subtlety oh, no, no. of jabs. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Nothing but love. But this is uh, normally like a $20 game. You can get it right now on Steam for about 6 It is definitely worth it. I enjoyed having played this game for about 17 hours, I believe. Um, I've beaten it a couple of different times. It is definitely, like you said, holy sci-fi. It has a lot of sci-fi and cyberpunk elements to it. So if you are photosensitive to lights or if you don't like J.J. Abrams' um, use of lens flare, <laughs> I would highly recommend probably not getting this game because it's not going to be up your alley. But if you enjoy more of the, the cyberpunk but don't want to necessarily get into the cyberpunk 2077, not bad for a $6 game, just saying. That's kind of my game recommendation for it. It was definitely a game that didn't get a lot of love. I think it's a hidden gem, underappreciated game, kind of however you want to look at that. It came out in 2013. Sorry, Nate, it's still too new for you. I know. It is, yeah. But I will say, it does play fantastic on the Steam Deck, because that's what I streamed it from. That's very cool. I noticed all the hero in it, or heroine, whatever you call it. She looks pretty haggard. It's a rough life, it looks like. <laughs> Ironically, it's got a very JRPG start. So one of the tropes of JRPGs is you wake up in a prison and you don't have a memory, or you don't remember, you know, amnesia. That's kind of the thing. Ironically, you wake up in a prison with amnesia. You don't know anything. <laughs> but it's just in an action game instead. Right. But the reason that is actually done that way, it does tie into the, the overarching themes in the story. And it's actually done for a reason this time, as opposed to the tropey kind of way that most Japanese role-playing games would play on that. Again, fun game. Six bucks, definitely worth it in my personal opinion. So, and like I said, if you guys want to see what the gameplay looks like, I got to put up the stream from last week on the GameSphere YouTube channel so you guys can watch that and kind of get a feel for what the game looks like. Do you know it doesn't start in the beginning? I was about probably a third of the way through the game for the section I was playing. Cool. Looked like a neat game. Still too new for you, Nate. Yeah, yeah. And also the, the rating isn't right for me either, but looks like a neat game. I also <laughs> want to make the caveat, this is a rated M game. M for <laughs> Matt. Mature, which you are not. To be fair, just about every single game recommendation is for mature audiences only. So unless he specifically says, this is family friendly, this is kid friendly, like the Disney bundle we had, which I have to say I did by myself. It was a lot ah. of fun, has been a lot of fun. But unless... It is very specific that this is a family-friendly game. Just assume it is for mature audiences only. Which usually means somewhere between teen and rated M. Wait, doesn't that count us out if it's for mature audiences only? Because I'm pretty sure with some of the jokes that happen in the back side of things, we none of us are mature. Yeah, there's a lack of maturity, I would say, in... in cases yeah over 18 okay we're, we're 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 physically over 18 so therefore we fall into the classification of being mature sure in age just not actually mentally mature <laughs> yeah age-wise yeah but i don't know that that's age-wise yeah age-wise you might have a point but as far as mentality no i mean we got nate on here right <laughs> Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video, or use the contact form by visiting 
tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social platforms, see the links in the bottom of the show description. You can find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Game Seer, Linux Saloon, and much more at tuxdigital.com. You can also show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I pause my game to be here shirt, kind of what I do every time we're here, or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, the conversation, well, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. We will never keep this conversation on topic. Ever. Ever.